This is Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Tuesdays and Thursdays from 10 a.m. You're on Rally Check uh, Radio. It's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Remember, you can send me a text at 2057. Email me at inbox at rallycheck.radio. I always have special guests, so I've got to be careful because we've got a special, special, special guest uh, this morning. It's a sporting hero, and I feel so blessed that she'll come on the show with me. And we're going to be talking about women's sport, which is under assault, madly, crazily. And we're going to discover about that. It's our sporting great, Lorraine Moller. Good morning, Lorraine. Good morning, Rodney. It was so wonderful. It was so wonderful that you shared with us last time you were on, and if anyone listening hasn't heard it, go to listen to it. It's oh, one of my top favorite interviews with Lorraine Moller opening up and describing to us her Olympic journey. It was magnificent, Lorraine, and I feel blessed that you shared that with us. Thank you. It was, I went there with you, and I had all the thrill and all the excitement, of course, not really, because I didn't put in the hard yards and do all the effort that you did. But I just, I think about it all the time. And um, we have looked up to you for such a long time. And I want to address women's sports, but I want to raise with you an issue that troubles me. And it might trouble listeners. And it's how do we, we have our kids, they go into sport. And I don't know whether I've changed or parents have changed, but I see a lot of pressure on kids in sport, not just to enjoy it and to compete hard and have fun and then go home afterwards and eat an ice cream, but it's like to be the next, if they're runners, to be the next Lorraine Moller and be a sporting great or if they're playing rugby, to get into the All Blacks, or to be a world champion tennis player. And the reality of it is, most of us are just average. <laughs> you know what I mean? I mean, it it falls to very few to be the world's best. But I'm looking at these parents on the sideline with little Johnny and Mary, who are 10 years old, and they're being screamed at to succeed, and the parents' disappointment when they don't is so manifest that the wee kid feels it and feels a failure. And yet I look at it and I think, you're a little kid. Sport's meant to be fun. Do you get that sense too sometimes? Oh, absolutely. I know what you're talking about, Rodney. And uh, I think, you know, it's probably... Uh, gone down its track in, in New Zealand because New Zealand has such a uh, identity with our sports people. Mm. So, um, but the, when it comes to children, uh, often what you get is parents who uh, project onto their children their unrealized dreams. Yes, I didn't and, climb Mount Everest, but Johnny will. Yes, and so they push kids into what they think or to finish their story rather than giving uh, children the um, opportunity to develop their own goals and dreams and to follow their own path. And that that's um, not an easy thing for a lot of parents um, 
because they are uh, still, you know, we always want the best for our children, absolutely. Yeah. Um, but uh, by the time they become teenagers, they're not having a bar of it. So, you know, if you're going to push something onto them, they you, you need to do it as a child, right? The, um, um, the drop-off in sports is big in New Zealand in like 15, 16, 17-year-olds isn't it because that yes. they break away and they've been good at a sport and they've been overly pushed yes and also there are so many other distractions yes so Boys it and becomes girls for a start. easier yeah you can bury yourself in a in an alternate reality on a computer so easily or on a phone um so they the important thing with the children and i've worked with rod dixon on his kids marathon program and it's a wonderful program all it it's a simple running program but instigated in schools mm -hmm. and i developed a program to help teachers and um his uh people who were coaches of his program to understand childhood development so i did quite a lot of research on it and uh what's really obvious is that uh children's physical development is happening really really fast um you know from the time they're born and they they just rapidly change i mean every parent knows you got a different kid in a week you know mm. um and that physical development is so important that they develop the um, structures, the cellular structures, to be able to produce energy in a healthy way. And the, that uh, infrastructure that is laid down during childhood is what is going to take them through their adult years and sustain a basic sense of vitality and health. And they sh will naturally want to move. You can't stop kids from moving. <laughs> they mm -hmm. need to play. Uh, one of the things that uh, really uh, stands out in terms of inhibiting childhood development is the, the large amounts of time that children now are spending sitting. Then mm -hmm. bodies are not made to sit. Uh, you know, a child that fidgets and, and you know, wriggles around and all the rest uh, is then given a label, uh, whereas they're probably the healthy child with a healthy instinct. Mm -hmm. um, so that sitting is really like uh, so bad for children's development. Um, and then that goes along with the amount of screen time. And then the constant feeding, and especially with refined sugars. Mm. So we've got the three S's, the sitting, the screens, and the sugar, which uh, all will impede uh, childhood development and their ability to move. And what they end up with is uh, they don't have a basic uh, base of being able to produce energy that is going to last them their whole lifetime. And then whatever they're put on this earth to do, they're not going to probably be able to finish the job um, because, you know, this frightening statistic of children not having uh, the same lifespan as their adults. I know. It's never happened before. Produced. Mm. Yeah. And, of course, we it's a total experiment with our children, this exposure to screens and the internet and these games because, mm -hmm. oh, my goodness, i got a nine-year-old and you have to watch him like a hawk because 
he is an active kid, but if he has an option of grabbing a phone or grabbing a computer and hopping on a game, he will, and he becomes a different personality afterwards. It's mm. terrible to watch. It's the same, by the way, as if he has a whole lot of sweets. He becomes unmanageable. And you can see it, that they turn into monsters. Um, and it's carefully crafted, obviously, to be addictive. Yes. So, you know, they're getting their um, dopamine hits and their whole new neurology is getting engaged and developed around this uh, device. Mm. And that's uh, dangerous in itself. Whereas in our day, it was, you know, it's sunny, your mum kicked you out the door and off yeah. you went and you went exploring and, you know, you, yes. you scaled cliffs and jumped in rivers, at least we did, and, you know, and you'd come home when it started to get dark and you got a little bit hungry or somebody broke an arm or something, you know. <laughs> so. I had a funny I had a funny story with my nine-year-old because I had him home from school one day and um, I was busy, and of course he wants to get on a computer screen, and I'm always saying no, and I'm feeling like the, you know, don't you love me and let me on a screen? No. And I had listened to a Matt Walsh podcast, and so I went out and I got a big box, you know, like a supermarket cardboard box, and I got a pen and a set of scissors, and I said, here, play with this. And you know, he was playing with that box for two and a half hours. Mm -hmm. And he was completely absorbed in making a spaceship or a car or some such. And you think, how remarkable is that? And he completely forgot about computers and computer games and screens. And you think, how much better for you? And, of course, we had no option but to play with that box. And when Matt Walsh said that, that it will keep a kid occupied for two hours, I didn't believe him. Yeah. <laughs> and it yeah. did. And it um, did. Yeah. And sport, what you're saying about sport is it's about that activity for a child to mm -hmm. have a healthy body and a healthy mind for the rest of their life because they're doing that development. And it's about that, not actually you got to be Lorraine Moller. Yeah, well, those are, um, you know, I mean, kids wouldn't know these days who Lorraine Moller is, but um, that... Uh, is an adult concept pushed onto children. And that is a whole area that we could probably talk about, that children are not being allowed to be children. So in our day, there were laws about marketing products to children. You weren't allowed to do it. Mm. And, uh, and I think that's changed, or at least we're marketed to um, whether we like it or not. There are... Uh, billions that are spent on yes. how to capture the mind and have us buy things that we don't really need. Yes. And uh, when we get engaged with these things, then it's time taken away from how we would naturally develop. And we have the natural world. We The natural world is where we're supposed to be doing our um, interplay, play being the key word, yes. um, and children will naturally navigate towards that. They'll navigate towards movement, and they will explore as far as they're comfortable with. Yes. 
and you know each stage of development the world should get bigger until yes. they're ready to make good decisions and they have healthy habits established which then carry them throughout their adulthood to be productive members of our um, society and contributing it's a challenge like never before for parents uh, i can promise you because i'm on my second time round with kids and even uh, my oldest is 34 and my next one is 12 and then nine, uh, 10 and 9. And the world they're growing up in and what they're exposed to is so radically different to 20 years ago. Um, it's a completely different world. And and it's hard for parents and it's hard for kids because all their mates are on computer games, all their mates are eating ice cream and chomping on sweets and parents throw them a big bag of sweets because parents are having to work longer hours and harder to pay the mortgage and they're using sweets and screen time as a babysitter um and kids are not just playing these games but they're being exposed to things um that kids should never be exposed to so it's a very, very challenging time for parents. And grandparents, of course, are looking at this and thinking, oh, my goodness, you know, what is happening to these poor children? Not And, and just, I just love sport and kids playing sport and having a game of rugby, um, having a throw around with the ball, and that sheer enjoyment that kids have. And I love competition as well. But it's to keep that perspective of kids developing a healthy outlook that we can easily lose. And as you say, you listen to parents and they're talking about how great their kid is as though that's them. Well, I think the operative word for children is play. Mm. And everything should be around play. Mm. Mm. Games. Um, to what age, if you are serious about a sport? If your child, if you're a young Lorraine Moller, and she showed, like you did, at a young age, this extraordinary prowess of sport. At what stage? And she says, Dad, I want to be the best. I really Ronnie, I'm to... just going to close the door here because sure. noise. Yeah. At what stage should... If you have a, a daughter or a son who says, I want to be the best, and it comes from inside them, at yes. what stage do you now, act upon that? And that's absolutely key, that the ambition to do something is coming from the child because if mm. it comes from the parent, I guarantee you it's going to belly up. Yes. It's not sure. going to work. Mm. So for somebody to reach the top, they have to be driven from their own heart mm. to do what they're doing. And if it's somebody else's dream, then it's not going to work. So uh, so children start with gross uh, motor movements and they go from walking to running and developing those gross motor skills to jumping and skipping and all those kinds of things. And then the uh, finer skills come later in uh, development. So the children are getting 
the basic, well, running is a basic to many, many sports and many, many things that we do, which is why it's such a great activity. Mm -hmm. Um, And also what you're doing when you're doing the running or any bilateral exercise, you're um, engaging the right and left side of the brain as you go right and left. So, you know, it crosses over. And uh, so you are developing that uh, cross-hemispheric talk which uh, then also gives rise to um, getting into the flow state mm-hmm. and uh, and learning to get it. And that's a very creative part of mind. So that's another thing that probably kids, when they get into sports too early, they are being robbed of going into their creative imagination, which also is what screens do. They're given yes. ready-made pictures and they're not uh, accessing their own imagination. Like they are with the, a box. Yeah, yeah. So that it's everything, every internal structure has been externalized and then the inner structure of the person doesn't get developed in the same way that it could. So then uh, what we're doing is we are uh, dumbing down their potential. Mm. and uh that's that's not a good thing either so um i think that uh the competition and uh because competition comes with it a sense of uh ethics yes and that's a really important thing to learn uh that is usually when the a development of the frontal lobe suddenly takes a big um Uh, leap forward at puberty Mm. so I would wait until puberty to really introduce the ideas of competition or um, sort of measuring yourself Um, because if you are always taught to measure yourself against other people that's a trap in itself it's a terrible trap it's a shocking trap yeah and and nearly everyone's going to come up short it guaranteed unless you're Lorraine Moller (laughs) <laughs> well, course, even I suffered from it. I know. Even, I <laughs> mean, know? all the greats get beaten, right? Rodney, yeah. I beat myself up because I only came third. And I go, <laughs> I didn't get silver or gold, you know? Like, you know, it's it's amazing what a number we human beings do on ourselves. It is. Yeah. It is. And, and how we gauge our sense of who we are um, through the judgment of others and um, you would have known that with the media, you know, one minute you're up and then it would be, oh, Paul Lorraine Moller didn't do very well. And um, it's the same for me in public life. When I was a politician, it's dreadful um, how you evaluate yourself by what others say and, 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 and write about you. And it's so good to be out of the public eye and you must feel the same because you can go back to who you are yeah, look, I I don't care really that much. No, good for you. People think of me. I, I think I've developed a, a thick skin in some ways, and um, mm. it's uh, a real blessing. And uh, because I know who I am, mm. and and really, if somebody wants to project some idea that's limited, that's theirs, mm. and it has nothing to do with me. So, do you go on social media like Facebook and Twitter? Not much. No, because that's another trap for young people, isn't it? 
because that's what other people think. And you did a tweet and then everyone piles in and these kids, I understand, are messaging each other literally at primary school and um, ganging up. And it's just, boy, you've got to so watch what your kids get up to. Now, we're on to the topic of the day and the reason for you being here because I can scarcely talk about this because it is so incomprehensible to me what is happening in women's sport. It is under total assault, could be to ruined, and to the extent that it's discussed, concerns that normal people have are dismissed. And I don't understand where this came from. Can you explain what's going on in women's sport? The idea that a man can declare himself to be a woman and turn up in a woman's sporting event, whether it be swimming or running, track and field. How did this come to be? Woman, men coming into women's sport, how did that happen, Lorraine? Well, I'm not sure how that happened. Okay, but let, let me just give you a historical perspective because it did not come from the grassroots. It came from top down and it came rather suddenly. Uh, so when I was growing up and participating in sports, uh, there was women were excluded were largely excluded from sports. It was a man's domain. Um, and at the top levels, you'll see that there was historically not the same events for women at all. They were included in the Olympics, but, you know, they had a little bit of tennis, a little bit of swimming, um, and sort of uh, things that were sort of suitable for the ladies, right? Um, not real sport. Yeah. So we get to 1972 Munich Olympic Games. That was uh, the longest event for women was the 1,500 metres, which is less than a mile. My goodness. So for an up-and-coming youngster like myself, I couldn't think of long distance for women. That just wasn't in the repertoire. Um, running cross-country, so the men ran uh, probably like five or six miles. The woman ran one or two miles. Um, and they ran unofficial events. So essentially we would, you know, go to some field somewhere for cross country, which was really, uh, you know, a paddock. And um, and then the woman would run their little event and then the men would have their big event and we'd cheer them and then scurry back to the hall to make the cups of tea for everybody to... That literally happened to you. You, you were going to events and running in a paddock separate to the event. Yeah, well, we were just sort of like the sort of like little, well, like like we have maybe a kiddies run, you know. Yeah. So the women oh, were in that category. Wow. We weren't taken seriously. Um, although, you know, we were really serious about it. But it's just the way it was. It's not that I, you know, I felt any angst about it. You didn't suffer a trauma or anything. the way it was, yeah. Hmm. And, uh, and, so it wasn't until 1980 that 1979 I ran my first marathon and that was 
uh, purely as a training thing because I wasn't interested in the marathon. It, it, if I looked up in it, my Olympic dreams, it, it, it wasn't there. The marathon wasn't there. So, you know, I my aspirations were in the track, of course. However, there was a movement by women to have longer distances included. And uh, one of the key people who spearheaded that was Catherine Switzer. Now, Catherine lives in New Zealand. She's American. Um, but she uh, was dedicated to providing opportunities for women in sport um, after her experiences of running in the Boston Marathon and getting pulled out because she was a woman. Um, or tried, they tried to take her out of the race. Um, they didn't succeed, but uh, when they discovered she was a woman, because that was like just a terrible thing for women to be running a marathon. And so she uh, helped to spearhead a movement to prove that women could be in the Olympics and they were worthy of it. And there were certain criteria. So she put on a marathon in London in 1980, and I was invited along because I'd run a marathon as a training run, but which put me as one of the the top women in the world because there weren't very many running the marathon at that time. And uh, so, as a result of that, I got this invitation to go run this. Uh, it was a showcase race, really, and um, in in England. And uh, they paid for me and my boyfriend and we stayed in this flash hotel in the middle of London and I thought no this is just fantastic all I have to do is run a marathon and I get this free trip with my <laughs> with my boyfriend coach etc so um so I ran that race and I won it and um that the uh all the uh, media attention around it was uh, very um, uh, significant and, uh, you know, TV coverage and front page in the papers. And this was something that was absolutely phenomenal. It was the first time that the streets of London had ever been closed for a sporting event. And it was a women's event, no less. My so goodness. there was this, you know, and, and it became the precursor to the London Marathon. So the London Marathon was instituted after that, but it was based on this woman's race. And so as a result of that, largely, and other other women pushing in other areas, the marathon was included in the Olympics in 1984 for the first time. And so that was uh, suddenly that bridged a huge gap which went from 1,500 metres, now they had the marathon. Uh, the events in between, they added a 3,000 metres. Um, and then uh, eventually the other distances got uh, entered into the Olympics for women so that by 2,000, women finally had uh, equal uh, events as the men. But that's not until 2000. So, um, you know, wouldn't women wouldn't compete in the pole vault, say, or, you know, those events, because they thought women couldn't do that. And once that marathon got in the Olympics, then the, I think it started this real rapid evolution of women in the, especially in track and field and running events. And uh, so those opportunities opened and I was an up and coming runner, able to, ride the wave of this rapid evolution in women's sports and participate in it. And also because I had the 
benefit of the Lydia training, which um, gave me an across the board uh, type of fitness that where I could compete. You know, I ran fifteen hundred meters, eight hundred meters, right up into the marathon, and could do well in that whole range of events because of the uh, type of training that I had. Uh, always being able to draw on that, and so we saw this participation of women come into the sport and at all levels. And as the running boom entered, and women now had. This, uh, you know, we had been sanctioned by the uh, Olympic body. Um, it just flooded. And today we have now come to the point where you go to a major marathon, etc. Uh, women take up more than 50% of the participants. Really? I did not know that. Yes. And, and also the marketing went a lot to women because women tend to be the ones that will you know, spend the family income and <laughs> determine yeah. where it goes. And uh, so, you know, marketing to women, so, you know, coloured shoes and, you know, snazzy outfits and all that kind of stuff. Uh, in my day, you didn't have gear that was geared towards women. It was, um, yeah. We, we, it we're seems, married. I mean, I just take it for granted that women can compete in all these fields, but it's such a recent thing. It's yeah. hard to imagine. It's I mean, surprising, that, isn't it? It is. It is astonishing. Yeah. And then uh, you know, in the Commonwealth Games, so I ran the um, Commonwealth Games marathon in Edinburgh in 1986. I got the silver medal, um, and in all those Commonwealth Games events. Now, uh, if we go back to 1974 Commonwealth Games in Christchurch, which is coming up for its 50th anniversary, so, you know, that really dates me. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, I ran in those as an 18-year-old in the 800 metres, and the woman had a compound within the uh, uh, the Commonwealth Games village. They had the, the village... And it was all, you know, had, uh, you know, fences around it and, you know, you, you couldn't come in unless you had the special pass and all the rest. And then within that, they had another compound with uh, a big fence around it where the women were housed. So we could go in and out, but the men couldn't come into the women's compound. Quite right. Yeah. And uh, so, you know, we were considered like we were the the special, um, you know, had to be protected um, from the forces of these uh, males, etc. And, um, and and in 1974, there wouldn't have been a, a woman's marathon, presumably the longest distance that a woman could run at the 74 Christchurch Commonwealth Games would be what, 1500 metres or something 1500 like that? 1500 metres, yeah, that's correct. Yes. So I did not know that. Yeah. So as women participated and demanded their own events, um, eventually they got them. Mm. And they were protected events. They were a protected category. And we did, at the international level, to partake in it, we had to have a, a genetic um, chromosome test. Right. So we had to test. It was a cheek scrape 
and uh, that would be sent away to a lab and it would check whether you were XX or XY and then you would be given a card. So I was a card-carrying female. Like, oh, wow. So (laughs) I would have thought these things were obvious, but there you go. Yeah. So that worked pretty well. And So right um, from the get-go, it was a genetic test for every competitor or random? No, for every female that wanted to compete in the female events. You had to show that you were a female. Otherwise, you went into the men's events. Got it. I did not know that. Yeah. And uh, And they knew back then, of course, what a woman was. Yeah. Yeah, there wasn't any dispute. (laughs) We were a protected category, and and, uh, we appreciated that. And I, I thought it was pretty funny to be a card card carrying female, you know. Yes, it was, you could prove it was it. great, you know. You pull it out at a bar and go, yeah. Um, so um, then, uh, occasionally, now it works well for. Uh, I just listened to a scientist on this, but the ninety nine point nine six percent accuracy for whether you're a male or female. There's a, a 0.4% of people that would need further testing. Got it. Yeah. Okay. So they might have some genetic anomaly or something like that. Mm-hmm. And uh, they would have a committee that would then investigate and then make a decision about where that person should be. And then it came up with this a very famous case, Casta Semenya. Now, Casta Semenya is uh, South African and uh, very mannish in her appearance in the female 800 metres, brought up as a female, uh, and she won everything by a country mile. She was uh, supreme in the women's 800 metres, and uh, she had this testing and it failed. However, um, she um, challenged it and uh, it went to committees and it became like a test case. Uh, She won the first few rounds and continued to compete as a female. Um, It turned out that she was... uh, um, a male, she had a full uh, um, male testes, et cetera, but they were internal. And so, um, you know, she was one of those special cases. And mm. then it was determined that uh, she couldn't compete as a woman. And uh, and so that became a big test case. And it went on for quite a few years. Then the uh, that must have been quite devastating for competitors who, you know, at the height of their career, are competing against all intents and purposes a male, and being robbed of their dream, of the opportunity well, to have their dream. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, look, you know, when you're competing and and then you have a a person that shows up and stands on your start line and they've got a, you know, five o'clock shadow and all the rest and you go, yeah, well, that's not really fair, you know, we know they're yeah. a man, and, you know, da-da-da-da-da. And, um, and was it the view that the South African competitor, was it 
accepted by the athletes, the fellow competitors, that it was a man, or did they not know? How did that play out for the competitors at the Well, I think the general consensus was that she was a man, uh, though I can't speak really from first-hand experience, only from PSA, because she was um, past my era. And that Um, was a a genetic issue where um, uh, there was an anomaly. mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. And so that challenged... That challenged the uh, authorities because they had to be making a decision about the appropriate category for this competitor to be in. Yes. So they scrapped the uh, chromosome test and they went to determining how much testosterone you had. And that became the measure of testosterone levels of whether you could compete in the man's or the women's, right, or whether you could compete in the women's, except they, first of all, they set it way too high to begin with. So, um, and I think it was 10, I'm not sure, nanomoles or whatever it is. Um, And so women have usually about uh, less than one. The average man has somewhere between five and ten. Oh my goodness! Oh. Okay, so, uh, so ten was sort of upper limit. So that meant that you know, if you tested that, well, that wasn't quite fair. So they brought it down to five. It still wasn't fair. I mean, five times as much. Yet, if you had a woman that took uh, male hormones to increase her performance, she would be banned. She would be. Yes yeah breaking the rules so that wasn't fair either so it really was sort of um up in the air for a long time um how crazy is it because for thousands of years men and women have been able to find each other and get married and have children and here we have a committee struggling to identify what is a man and what is a woman by a simple rule because well, you, would have, you you would have thought okay we've got a chromosome test uh, every now and then it, there might be an anomaly, but let's attend to that. But they threw the test out. Yes. I, I think they should go back to the test. I Absolutely. Think. Yeah, because uh, the majority of us are XX or XY. Yes. It doesn't matter. I mean, you can take hormones, et cetera. But what they're finding now, um, they opened it up, um, you know, to people who could identify who you know so there there came in the strange thing which I think where everything got really muddied where sex and gender became sort of interchangeable Mm -hmm. in terms and so and they're not so there is a group that well first of all sex and gender were sort of considered the same thing they were a biological thing Yet you've got a group suddenly coming in and um, maybe not suddenly, but saying that gender is an identification thing. And so you might uh, identify with the gender other than the sex that you're born with. And they were able to exploit this anomalous case and the dropping of the chromosome test. They were able to exploit that to make it sound not a binary thing, but a continuum. Yes. An arbitrary thing. Yes. And and this I, I mean I don't agree with that. I I don't think we're a continuum of sexes. Uh, no. you know, biology is a pretty expedient 
and it doesn't bother with having a continuum because uh you know what what makes the, the world continue is having uh, you're either a male or a female mm. and um and you know you've got uh, variations at each end of the bell curve but the majority um is that we have male and female so that we have uh people coming in to continue this the story of humanity um, and when you when you said women getting into the olympics and into sporting events was from the grassroots up to push on the administrators of the sports this issue of letting men compete in women's events has been a top down thing mm -hmm. it's been the administrators adopting the view that there is gender and it's separate to biological sex and a man can identify a gender soul or a gender thing and suddenly declare himself a woman and therefore compete in the name of inclusion in a woman's event. Yes. So... I, I can't. I can't even begin yeah. to understand that. Yeah, I mean, I, I think most people don't. They don't realise. Um, I don't think it's administrators. I think it comes higher up than administrators. Administrators are, are probably told this is the policy, and then they uh, have to um, abide by it. Um, but I do think from the top down there is a move to uh, perhaps uh, we've had the family unit disintegrated. Now this, uh, uh, how we define ourselves as human beings, and uh, I think that the force of our sexuality is one of the strongest uh, forces that govern our lives and is pretty much uncontrollable. Uh, there's an attempt to break that down. I don't think it's going to happen, actually. It's, um, but uh, it's bigger than sport, isn't it? Yes, yes, oh, totally. So, uh, what really gets my <laughs> my dander up is um, the uh, that the word "woman" is being taken away from "woman." Yes. So. As a group, uh, we're being disenfranchised, and I don't like that because uh, I thought, okay, in sport and, you know, there's all these wonderful things happening and I'm a part of this movement and women have the opportunity to do things that weren't available to them and we have left something better for the next generation and so I'm sort of sitting pretty smug at the things that were achieved and next thing – somebody opens up the back door and, and mm. you know, that's blown apart and you go, what? What? Well, how, how the heck did this happen? In this respect, I'm a conspiracy theorist way down a rabbit hole because I don't know, but I can't see how this can come about with good intentions. And I don't think that the activists are strong enough or number enough or have enough economic or political power to drive it. 
I think there are politically powerful people who are inflicting this, and the activists are sort of around the fringe acting as cover. Because we could just tell all those activists to bugger off, and they would have to, if you know what I mean, <laughs> because we are the majority. But yes. that that this whole activist thing to me is like a cover for a drive to eliminate one of the foundations of life, family, reproduction, um, joy, um, contentment, self-worth, which is the distinction between a man and a woman, and in doing so, destroy women, destroy men, and destroy their sense of self-worth. And at the same time, bewilder us because we're left not knowing what to think and you can see it in your children where they're teaching this in the schools that they're just like confused little kids like what boy girl no it's different isn't it mum but the teacher says um something big is afoot to do that to us Oh, I agree with you 100%, Rodney. And I can't understand, like, I mean, I I, I don't want to. Um, I don't think, I don't know what it is. Like, is it, I, I can't imagine there's a group of men um, sitting there like in some movie, um, sitting in an office somewhere and smoking cigars and saying, this will really rock the world, ho, 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 and then we'll take control. I mean, I can't picture that. But how could we get to this point? It just sort of staggers me. Don't you feel that? Yeah. Well, you know, look, I don't – first of all, um, you said you're a conspiracy theorist, and yeah. so usually what people will preface trying to figure it out is say, I'm not a conspiracy theorist, yeah. but, but – Right. Now, no, I'm but, in there. Yeah. But, I'm no but. <laughs> uh, yeah, so um, – and, you know, I heard that that term conspiracy theorist was coined by the FBI to disenfranchise people who countered the narrative. And so, uh, you know, you're considered, uh, you say conspiracy ther theorist, and you're a nut job, right? Yeah. Um, and uh, so, I, I, you know, I don't care what anybody uh, calls me. I, I do think that if somebody could rule the whole world, they would. Yes, right. I agree. Yeah, uh, I mean, like uh, for I think uh, some people, it's a big game, and um, they want to see if they can. If they, uh, I, I think that life's a stage. I think life is probably like a big game, and uh, we're going to see if we can. Uh, reach the goal of um, uh, maybe enlightenment and understanding that we are divine creatures, uh, ultimately. And mm. then there's a force that uh, has to guard the goal. And uh, if you're going to get there, you've really got to prove that you're worthy. Mm. And you that's their job. That's the role that they play by trying to stop us. Um, and let's see if they can use anything they like to try yes. to. Um, yes. Yeah. I look at 
upon you. I can see you, listeners, kind, and you're a beautiful woman, and you're a wonderful woman, like just you. You beam this beautifulness that only a woman can radiate, if you know what I mean. And a man feels that. And and that difference of a man and a woman is so life-affirming in every sense of that that phrase and so wondrous and so joyful. And our young people are being robbed of it as though it's no big deal or no big distinction. Uh, chivalry has been killed off. The idea of being a gentleman and a lady has been killed off. And this is not to say that women can't do things. Of course they can. But it's to say they can do things and that we accept there's a physiological, psychological, genetic difference at the moment of conception between a man and a woman, which we love. Yeah. And, and yet... <laughs> The prime people minister have been writing poems and music for, forever. <laughs> and our prime minister gets asked, "What is a woman?" Can't answer, and says he's not been prepped to be able to pre-formulate an answer. And yet he was married. He's got a mother. Like, what would possess? a political leader, and we see this, don't we, over and over mm -hmm. again. We had a, a Supreme Court nominee, I think it was, asked what is a woman, and they said they're not a biologist. They can't answer the question. What on earth is driving them to talk that nonsense? And that's where I get to the conspiracy level, because I think, just say it. You know the answer, actually but you can't bring yourself to say it. And it can't be that they might offend some activists because politicians do that all the time. And who cares? Well, you know, we are um, sources of our own information. Yes. You only have to go on a long run and it just floods through you, you know. Yes. You're just getting all sorts of things. You're putting it all together. It's like you're tuning into the... Um, you know, super consciousness of uh, humanity and and yes. it's all there and we are uh, able to uh, access that. Uh, we have to practice. We have to open those pathways to be able to access it. And yet what we're taught is that we're not that. And if we want information, we've got to go outside of ourselves and find some expert who's going to tell us how it is. Mm. Mm. Now now they're telling us, well, we have to consult with the expert to find out uh, uh, what a man or what a woman is. And it's it's such BS. Uh, Shakespeare um, never had this problem. Um, no. Tell me. And, and look, I tell you, uh, it's uh, that inner knowing of what a man and a woman is. Our existence is testimony to that. Yes. Yes. And, and, and little boys and little girls know exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And they what didn't have to go to school or read a book or have no. somebody else tell them. Yeah. No. Tell me, what does it mean at this moment of time for women's sport? 
Well, there's been uh, like a lot of things that have happened in this uh, last three, three or four years that have come on so rapidly that we're all just sort of going, what the heck's going on? Um, and uh, trying to get uh, an assessment of the situation. So I think uh, there is that group of people that would uh, seek to uh, trap us into a fixed system and uh, that are not uh, don't have our best interests at heart. Um, we have been led to believe that governments, etc., and we're in a democracy and we're self-governed and they look after our interests on behalf of the collective. Um, I don't think that's true. And I think we're finally waking up to that. Yes. That, um, you know, we got to be careful because we're, we're be in really danger careful. of losing our humanity. We, and uh, there is a group that would like to uh, see that happen. Um, and so this is why it's the waking up time. And uh, we are, we're getting a, a fast education in uh, expanding our view of how we think of ourselves. And we're breaking out of the box. I think that's actually a really, really good thing. Uh, although uh, a lot of the systems are, and breaking out of them are pretty painful. Uh, uh, I can't remember what your original question was. My original question <laughs> is, what does it mean for women's sport at this moment in time? So, uh, yes, so where I was getting to with that is uh, we've seen uh, the government make their policies. Uh, they have used this word inclusion over and over again, which annoys me because, you know, as human beings, we respond to that. We go, yes, we all agree that everybody should be included. So we say that, but we don't realize the word is a Trojan horse Absolutely. that brings in these uh, ideas that actually are repressive and divide us and uh, reduce our potential. And so uh, what we've seen at grassroots level is a lot of um, – the sports uh, have felt uh, or pushed upon uh, the people involved, the stakeholders, this uh, inclusion idea. And so uh, boys are taking part in girls' sports. Um, and generally, the, I've seen that these athletes that take part, that want to be included, they're actually, um, it's like a a B plan for mediocre male athletes. Yes. Right. So they can come in and, and take all the goodies and, uh, and they, a lot of them haven't been very nice or gracious or what I would say were, uh, good athletes. Um, and not even of the trans community as we understood 10 or 20 years ago. Yes. If you know what I mean, they're not genuinely trans. It's an opportunistic thing you feel, right? Yes, I I, I think so. Um, and it's it's kind of been in your face and too bad, and you got to just suck it up, girls, because mm. here we are. And you've seen, um, especially in the US, there's been quite a few cases like with the swimmer Leah Thomas, etc. And and they're just you know hulking guys that yes. are. Can we have women 
any time of the day. And and they're obviously men in women's sports. So yeah. it it doesn't look right. You're looking at it and you're going, well, this isn't fair. No. You've met the wonderful Roe Edge, who uh, I follow on Twitter, and I I suggest everyone follow on her Twitter because she's fantastic. We've had her on the show, um, and she's fighting the good fight here. And she tells me that there's a mountain biker in New Zealand who's male competing in the girls' sports and has destroyed the sport for women who were keen competitors, but they just turn up, and it's not a race. It's like that swimming with Leah Thomas. It's not a race. And it, and it's so dispiriting. And as you say, Leah Thomas, I can't remember what his male name was, but he was a mediocre swimmer as a male. And he could come in and humiliate these women in the, in the pool. But more than that, he would humiliate them in the changing rooms. Um, this is disgusting. And yes. May I make a, another tough point? Because I think women have been erased through this process. But I think men were erased some time ago. And now men feel unable to speak up and defend women. Because 20 years ago, if any man tried to walk in in a changing shed, on a woman or a girl, they would be beaten up. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I have no doubt about it. They would be beaten up on the spot. You, you, you just wouldn't even hesitate. Now, because men have been so reviled for their masculinity and their aggression and their toxicity, that they just shrug and don't know what to think because mm -hmm. they, they, they can't think their male thoughts. Does that make sense to you? Yes, it does. And I think what's happened is you see this um, demasculinization of men and mm. then the masculinization of women. Yes. Um, and uh, women have taken over a lot of the things that men have done and mm. uh men uh, go, well, you know, what do yeah. I do? <laughs> what do know? I do? It's, it's a funny a... thing, isn't it? Because e yeah. every one of these things is a good idea taken to another step. So mm -hmm. I look upon this as it's a very bad idea to criminalize homosexuals. Um, um, just it's, it's not a good idea. That said, we don't want. I don't want homosexuals down the street waving flags and and dancing provocatively in front of families. You know, I sort of don't want sex on display like that. I'm a prude. Likewise, it's been a very very good idea to open up all the opportunities in the world for girls and for women in sporting, in careers, in academia. Uh, everywhere. It's a great idea because they're women that want to do things and they shouldn't be excluded uh, from their sex. But we've taken that to say there's no difference between men and women and we've taken it to be the next step to not criminalising um, and including homosexuals into society is to say, oh, well, and then there's this other thing called trans. No, that is men 
masquerading as woman, mm-hmm. right? It's not a man who prefers a man uh, sexually or a woman who prefers a woman sexually. It's a man masquerading as a woman. Now, I think they're perfectly entitled to walk around in a dress if they choose to, but they're not entitled to walk into the women's changing rooms or bathrooms or sports, full stop. Mm-hmm. And that's the little step that we've missed. And I can't understand why we always were anxious about predators on kids. Well, we've opened up all our private spaces for women to predators because if I'm a sexual predator, I just need to say I'm a woman and I can walk into my girls' changing rooms. Mm-hmm. I can't be stopped. This mm-hmm. is this is shocking. I had an interesting experience, Lorraine. I wrote to our new mayor down here in Queenstown. I had to look his name up to remember. Glenn Lewis is his name. And we've had a big pride week, and it's been over the top, you know, waving flags and everything. God, just give it a rest, you know. Like, why do why do my kids have to go somewhere and have pride flags waved at them and 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 celebrate? a sexual preference. I mean, it is bizarre to me. Why are we celebrating a sexual preference? Just get on with your life and leave mm-hmm. everyone alone. Anyway, I rode off to the mayor and I said, look, I was a bit worried about his comments because my children had a bad experience in a changing shed where a man came out, obviously a man, dressed as a woman. He had a beard and it was pretty traumatizing for them. And my kids now won't go to a public changing room or public toilet or go to the toilet at school because they don't feel safe. Mm-hmm. And I wrote to the mayor and explained this to him and said, could he give a commitment that under his administration, men wouldn't have access to girls' changing sheds at council facilities? Pretty basic question. Mm -hmm. And he came back and said, oh, your email has been noted. Mm. That's supposedly a man. No man with his salt would not stand up for a young girl to have her changing shed protected for men. But our mayor won't. And, of course, that's now every politician. Yeah. Sport. Chris Luxon was asked about this. You may have missed this here in New Zealand. And he said he's not going to spend the election campaign talking about toilets because people that do are on another planet, to which my question is, I don't want to talk about toilets too, but I want to defend women. Because I'm a man. Yeah. Don't you want to do that, Mr. Luxon? And isn't it that fundamental, Lorraine? Yes. Well, he's deflecting. Yes. But why? So that's, he. you know, if, if you don't uh, understand the issue at hand, it's nothing to do with toilets. No. You know, I'd give him a toilet brush and send them off, um, <laughs> you know. <laughs> oh, my goodness. As you look around the world, 
because you're in the United States, the UK and the United States, do you see a shift occurring back to yes. saying you do? Yes. And that's because uh, people are starting to have their voices heard, saying we don't want this. Uh, parents have been speaking up. And uh, so there has been a, a response on mass. Mm. Um, and so here in the US, you've got more and more states that have committed to having girls and women's only change rooms and sports. Um, and so there has been a swing the other way. Mm. So, uh, and then uh, athletics uh, at the international level have made a determination that uh, men cannot compete in women's sports. Uh, so uh, any male that's gone through puberty does not qualify. Right. Uh, and I think other sports have done that. And that is necessary because they realize that that uh, whole avenue of sports would be killed altogether. Killed uh, mm. Yeah. And I think often at the bottom of this, because what really drives our world is the bottom line of economics. Mm. And uh, if women with their spending power and their participation stop participating, then there's a lot of money or revenue that are lost immediately to certain groups. So it's in mm. their interest to keep it going and viable. Mm. Um, and I think it's always a shame when we start to go backwards. I think probably we'll look back at this period of history and go, you know, they thought they were the most liberal and free, etc., and they were actually the most repressed. Yes. That is one of the that is one of the funny things, isn't it? That and like um they wouldn't even like us having this conversation. And that's why we have to have reality check radio, because you couldn't go on Radio New Zealand or go into the New Zealand Herald and have this discussion because um ideas scare them. And at heart is this tyrant totalitarian view of the world that is being imposed upon us and the media are complicit in it um mm -hmm. and so anyone who speaks up like us are demonized and it's so wonderful to have you lorraine because um of your status and the respect that people hold for you so that when you speak um people will listen um so i thank you for that and Little girls everywhere pursuing their dream have to have that dream open to them. Mm -hmm. And that can only be if we say there's men's sports and there's women's sports. Yes. Um, so I'd like to just touch on this issue, which I think is a big one, is that in my time, uh, sports was not a usual thing for girls. And when I was growing up, I was discouraged from participating in sports, although, you know, I didn't listen. So thank goodness um, I, I had that in me not to listen to uh, what other people said half the time. Um, but um, women or girls about uh, generally at puberty, it's a hard time for girls because the, the changes uh, uh, that happen 
uh, athletically for girls puts them at a disadvantage. Whereas at the same age, when they are prepubescent, they usually girls are uh, they a little taller and <laughs> a little more faster developing, and so they will generally athletically exceed the boys uh, at the same age, prepubescent. And then as soon as they go through puberty, then that, that whole thing changes. Mm. And I remember it being a tough time for me too. And I got very anemic once I started menstruating and uh, losing uh, blood every month and um, all those sorts of things. And I had to adjust. Um, and fortunately, it, it was just my love of running and the freedom I felt from it that it kept me going at the time. But I can remember people saying, hey, you're done. You're all washed up, you know, um, give up. Um, and you know, and that there was no future in it for me as a female. Uh, so, uh, I know how hard it can be for young women. And at that time, because of just, you know, honestly dealing with periods and stuff, it's just a horrible, horrible thing for a girl to have to go through. And I can remember thinking, this is so unfair. This is so unfair. I've got to put up with this every month. Why couldn't I have been born a boy? Yes. Now, if if there had been this voice at school saying, well, you probably are a boy. Oh, my goodness. You know, so then uh, I get sidetracked from what is my destiny and now I'm all messed up on hormones and doing all this stuff and probably, you know, you know, cutting your breasts off and all these things that girls are being encouraged to do. Absolutely criminal in my opinion. It is criminal. It is it is yeah. the highest child abuse. Yes. And our school and, teachers uh, and our schools are going along with it. Yeah, and and so there's nothing to do with acceptance or inclusion. It is uh, denying you can't be born in the wrong body. I, I just it's, it's a no. stupid thing to say. You can't no. be born in the wrong body. No. You're born in the body you're born in. You know. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. And know. that's why you and I sit here, and listeners sit there listening to us. And it is so mad you can't even understand why you're discussing it. It's like so much of what's happening in the world today because it's, it's oh, yes, you need to discover who you really are. And um, I went along when my daughter was 11 to the speeches of the winning debaters at her school. So they're 11-year-olds. And a little boy gets up who now identifies as trans, so he's 12, and he spent his speech discussing that there were 72 genders and that he couldn't cover them all. And all the parents were sitting there clapping this and saying how brave he was. And you're thinking, this is barking mad, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, it was like everyone was in a trance or something. But I think they believed it. I don't think they were just socially going along with it. I think they, I got no idea. I, 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 I struggle with it. And um, the other thing I noticed, Lorraine, my kids are keen on sport and the sports they do are quite physical and I've I've got to help in terms of judging at a low level and watching the kids. And oh my goodness, 
once they hit puberty, the difference between the boys and the girls is so phenomenal. It is just, it is completely different. That physicality and aggression that these uh, post-pubescent boys bring to a sport compared to the girls, it's just night and day. Mm-hmm. You know, you can't mistake it in, 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 in a sport. And the idea that you would allow these um, young gorillas <laughs> into a physical sport with women, just horrible. Lorraine, we've run out of time. Um, it is always a pleasure to speak with you. I salute you for what you're doing and speaking up for womanhood and for girls, and also in doing that, speaking up for men because uh, men need this discussion too, because we need to be men and to man up um, and understand that our women and our girls, our wives and our daughters need our support right now. And it's time to shake it off and be a man. And I can promise you that if any man tries to get into the changing shed with my daughters, there will be trouble. I will not be able to stop myself. And, um, I, 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 um, that's what I'm put on earth to do, to stand up for my girls. Um, lovely to have you. Sorry. Oh, I'd just like to add that, uh, when I was growing up, I was nurtured very much by the men who ran with us and, uh, they, you know, they, they really, I, when I was running in at university and started running with a group of guys, and they called me running chick, right? Yeah. And uh, they, it was all so um, so dear, you know. It was yes. just lovely the way they were so proud of me and what I did. But they looked after me, yes, and they made sure that I was nurtured. And and that's the the male role to and um, safe, yes, and safe. yes. To to uh, protect uh, mm. that uh, environment so that mm. the woman can uh, thrive and be loving and pass on that to the next mm. generation. And so we all have our role, and they are deeply um, embedded in our psyches and in our bodies. Yes, of uh, biology and. Yes. Uh, that's important and to recognize it and uh, to realize that the way that we are born, that is precious. Absolutely. Don't try to change it. Love it. Love it. You know, realize it's got so much treasure in there. Yeah, Um, and even the confusion and uh, the heartache of growing up through puberty and all that that entails, it's all part of making you a woman in who you are, making you a man in who you are and learning that respect uh, for others. And what this movement is, is a deep disrespect for humanity. Yes. For what makes us human and respectful to one another. Lorraine Moller, it's always a pleasure. Uh, Thank you. We love your work. We love you. Um, And it's amazing to think of all your sporting achievements and what you're doing now is even more important because you're speaking out for us. So I thank you for that. It's my pleasure, Rodney. You're on Rally Check Radio. It's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Remember, you can send me a text at 2057, uh, email me inbox at rallycheck.radio. 
aren't we blessed with the guests we have and aren't we especially guests to have so blessed to have Lorraine Moller and to have her along to speak with us this morning this is Real Talk with Rodney Hyde Tuesdays and Thursdays from 10am